This episode of Heavy Cardboard is brought to you by BoardGameTables.com. While none of us needs a gaming table, it sure would be great to have one as the centerpiece of your game days. Go check them out at BoardGameTables.com and take your gaming to the next level. Now, onto the show. Cardboard episode 57 Princes of the Renaissance. Coming to you from the basement still isn't finished house. <laughs> Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. And I'm Amanda. So tonight's our first effort in putting out weekly content. Yeah. As we mentioned last episode, we're going to do the quote-unquote full show once a month or so with feature reviews, interviews, first looks, and and whatever, interspersed weekly so that y'all are getting more content more often, but honestly, it cuts down the -the behind-the-scenes stuff on our end. So it's a win-win, we hope. Just let us know what you think. Please, guys, let us know if you have any suggestions as well for possible content, that'd be awesome too. We want to thank Carmen and Elaine, the great people behind Game Surplus, for their continued sponsorship of the show. Great people, reputation, and an amazing inventory of games, including many imports and hard-to-find games. Their tagline is home of great games at great prices, so check them out over at gamesurplus.com and tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. All right, guys, enjoy this interview that Edward conducted with Martin Wallace at Spiel 2016. Good morning from Essen Spiel 2016. I am very fortunate to be sitting down with the esteemed Martin Wallace of Tree Frog Games, among a million other game designs that he's done. So, Martin, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me today. No, th- thank you for coming along, Edward. It's, uh, yeah. So, you have two games here at Spiel. Uh, one in prototype form, one in uh, fin- or new game, The Arrival, over at uh, uh, what's uh, Games Up. Yep. So you want to talk a little uh, bit about The Arrival? What about the games I've got with Space Cowboys? Oh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, I I've apologize. Got three new games. <laughs> three new games. Now, I own this show. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So three three new games out. So there's Hitzy Road. Via Nebula, although those two were released at Gen Con, and then there's Games Up. Um, then I'm also showing prototypes of the last Tree for a Game, uh, A Handful of Stars, and there's also another prototype that I've been, I've been um, showing on the Plastic Soldier Company booth, which is Lincoln, which is a two-player American Civil War game. I, I was unaware of this. Well, there you go. You need to do your research. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, going back to the arrival, if you want to know a bit about that, it's kind of an updated Mordred, um, but the the dice system has been replaced by cards, so you have a little bit more control over the resources you get, you know. Um, But at heart, it's the same kind of thing, where players are collectively trying to 
defeat the bad guys, but at the same time, we're also striving to be an individual winner. So it's a non-cooperative, cooperative game. Um, but yeah, I think they've done pretty well with that as a, as a first-time company. Um, yeah, I, I actually interviewed Ralph, and yeah. I, was, I was amazed that uh, a new, brand new company got Mar a Martin Wallace design for their first game. So well, that, that piqued my interest as to how that came about. Well, it's not hard. He sent me an email saying, I'd like a game. And I said, have you got any money? And he said, yes. And it's deal. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. You know, I might design a lot of games, but you know, money's still tight. You know, sure. It's hard to make a living. So you know, if somebody comes along, um, Although, that, does that mean I'm just going to get inundated with emails tomorrow? Where they're like, give us a game, give us a game. They're like, oh, God. First yeah. world problems, though, right? <laughs> so we're sitting here looking at A Handful of Stars, which is the final game of Tree Frog Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, last. so talk about that transition, how that's come about, why it's come about, and is that a good thing or a bad thing in the end? Um... I think the, well, the main reason it's come about is because the, the games we've put out in the last few years just simply haven't made enough money to support the company. Um, and also with the, the passing of Terry Pratchett, we lost the Discord license, which is one of the, pretty much the only game we had that sold reliably on an ongoing basis. That was our evergreen. So company, Companies struggle if they don't have an evergreen. Sure. You know, uh, Days of Wonder, they've got their Ticket to Ride, and Cosmos have their Settlers, and Hans and Gluck have their Carcassonne. So you've, you've always got the, that background sense. If you don't have that, then if you, if you don't have regular hits, then you're in trouble. And the games we were putting out, you know, they did okay, but they weren't doing amazingly well. Um, so, uh, you know, the move to New Zealand didn't help. Um, you know, it made it very difficult to operate the old sure, be, model. Be, being out yeah. in yeah. further so, away. And also, there's just so much more competition. You know, when we first started back in the 90s, nobody was doing the kind of games that we were doing. So you put a game out there, it didn't matter what it looked like. The people who were into that kind of game just bought it. Um, and you didn't have to do any marketing, any advertising. You know, you just let people know and they'd come and buy. Whereas now, I'm, some, I'm sure somebody, I don't know if, how true it is, somebody said there's something like 3,600 new games released at this show. That seems like a big number, there's, but still over a thousand yeah, for sure, right? Yeah, it's a lot. And there's a, the, 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 way more you know, heavier games. So maybe you look at the stuff that Stronghold's putting out. Um, and the, the quality of the production is amazing. I mean, you look at the stuff that's put out, and you compare it to the kind of stuff that Avalon Hill put out in the <laughs> 80s. Sure. And that, that Avalon Hill then was a high quality publisher for war gamers. You know, once in a while, your cards will be colored in. <laughs> Sometimes you wouldn't have to actually cut them out yourself. Like, but nowadays, it, and quite simply, we can't compete with that anymore. We can do it, yeah, we can produce designs, but we can't compete on the level of doing that level of artwork on a, on a reliable basis, that level of marketing. And so, because we just don't, there's, well, there's me and my wife. Sure. And that's it, there's me, me and Julia, and we just don't have the time to do it. So it's like, well, okay, focus on what you're good at. And this is what a number of people have told me, you know, I enjoy designing games. I don't particularly enjoy doing the marketing. I don't particularly enjoy 
the, pro the, the production process. So we'll just do what you're good at, let other people do what they're good at. So, I mean, a good example of that is with the reissue brass. Um, you know, Roxy Games are doing a brilliant job on the artwork. Their, their attention to detail there, they're setting up things in a much more reliable, professional way than I would have been able to do. So, so that's great. So the public get one of my designs, but it's published in a better quality format than they would have got from Treefrog. Uh, you know, similarly, I'm doing stuff with Osprey Games, I'm doing stuff with Plastic Soldier Company. Obviously, you know, there's the things some other companies like Games Up from uh, Space Cowboys. Um, so there Mercury will be... Games with the reprints yep, of Princes yeah. of the Renaissance. So um, there's plenty. I kind of figured now, because there's so many more com companies out there, people want content, and I'm a content provider. So it's a lot easier for me to place games with companies. You know, <clears throat> back in the 90s, there was no way I would have been able to license those heavier games to companies because there's nobody around that wanted to publish them. Now there'll be like 20 companies that would bite my hand off. Which is great yeah. as somebody, a, a fan of heavy games mm. and as well as the show mm. featuring heavier mm. games, it's amazing. It's, yes. it's, it's renaissance time. This is oh. the, 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 a the, good time to be us for, right for, now. For, for, the, for the gamer themselves, ah, you've never had it better. Seriously. Um, <laughs> for the companies, it's a nightmare. I mean, seriously, you know, the, the, the companies I talk to, it's very, very competitive. When you have single guys putting out stuff on Kickstarter, which is getting lots of money in that, you know, there's a lot of money going into Kickstarter games that's being drawn away from the more established companies. From the traditional publishing method, right? Yeah. yeah. Which uh, I suppose to a certain degree goes some way to explaining, for instance, Asmodee's policy of acquiring major brands because that's a way for them to corner the market in games that sell reliably. Right. Because you know, um, it's been a big discussion uh, among media folk hmm. that whether or not it's a good thing for the industry as a whole, uh, what Asmodee is doing, and it's 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 exciting times either way. Hmm. Um, I don't think it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's a natural reaction to the way the market's going. You know, the the the, the thing is, the bottom line is, the internet has changed the world. You know, it's changed, totally agree. You know, it's changed the world of publishing, it's changed the world of media, you know, t television, films, and it changed the world of music. I mean, God, but, you, know, you know, musicians, bands really struggle to make money now. It's a lot harder, even though you have greater access to people, it's a lot more competitive. So it's a lot harder to make a living from it. And it's a similar thing in the board games industry. The internet has fundamentally changed the nature of the industry. So you, you have to adapt. Right. So in the end, though, it's reassuring to hear that Martin Wallace isn't going anywhere, just the production company's going yeah, out, it, away. I mean, I suppose it's a case, I, I, you know, I will be mixing up what I do. So it's not like every game I'm going to be doing is going to be a typical Martin Wallace game because sometimes you have to do those simpler games that are going to earn the money. I mean, that's yeah. the reality. You know? so, my, money drives, I yeah, totally yeah. understand. So it's almost more widely, uh, widely accepted game mm. that's going to sell more copies, it gives you the benefit to yep. then go yep. and design the game that a uh, quote-unquote Martin Wallace game. Yes, yeah, because you know, the bottom line is the big complicated games 
they don't make any money. They, they, they just don't. They're, they're very limited sales, very limited sales. So it's, it's a little bit like, you know, you, you find this um, with some directors or some, uh, you know, they, they'll do the big mega budget films so they can make enough money to do the vanity projects. Yeah, their pet and, projects, yeah, exactly. And, and that, right. So it's the same thing. And it sometimes kind of annoys me when people comment on my games. It's like, oh, this is his normal stuff. Oh, this is very simple. And you like, do want to pay the yeah, bills. It's like, yeah, this is a full-time <laughs> job for me. Sure. Yeah, I've got a mortgage. I've got overheads. You know, it's right. like, Jesus, no give doubt. us a break. <laughs> All right, so a handful of stars I'm looking at. Mm. Um, I've heard that the uh, the the timing track and the the mm. uh, the every time you shuffle mm. yeah. that mechanic is the the timer of the game, yeah. and that that's pretty pretty original fix. Not fix. Let me correct that. No, I, I'd accept the word fix. It yeah? is a fix. It, okay. It, it was an issue. I know what you're getting. At. It was an issue with Mythotopia ending the game, and I, it. I wish I'd come up with that idea then because it, I really struggled with how to end Mythotopia. And it is a problem with any game where the end game condition is set by a target victory point thing because it's, as you get close to that, players' behavior change, okay? Uh, and I didn't want a set turn track as such because you don't know how many turns are going to be in the, the, the game. So the shuffle track, at first I think, oh, that won't work. But once I brought it in, it's like, yeah, that works really nicely because that means every time you play, the game is pretty much going to be the same amount of time because, you know, the background shuffle rate doesn't really change that much. Right. Um, so, you, you know, it, 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 it just solves a lot of the problems that I had with Mythotopia. Uh, um, the other thing that I'm pleased about with that I think adds a lot to the game is the fact that the board is a random setup each time. So you Key, the, adds that variability in there. You never play on the same map twice. And the other thing is that the forces are on the board. Now in a few acres of stow and Mythotopia, your, your strength was kind of abstracted because it's in your hands. So effectively, there was no position on the board. You know, yes, you control areas, but your army is effectively wherever you want it to exactly, be. Exactly, right. Whereas in this game, your, your forces have a defined position and you have to think much more in terms of okay which areas I'm going to defend by putting star bases in where's my mobile force is going to be making sure that your systems are connected so that they can support each other because the, the way combat works is, is it's a kind of tug-of-war thing where when combat occurs you can move your fleets that are within range into combat as reinforcements so having a connected empire is good. Ha having fleets that are mutually supporting is good. good. Almost like in a Napoleonic sense where he, he would march his armies in groups which would then Support concentrate at the battle, point right. of battle uh, when it came. So, um, so for me, of the three games, I think this is by far the best one. It, it's cleaner, it, it's more intuitive, and it's for me, it's an interesting intellectual challenge in that, you, you know, when you play, it's like, okay, what's your strategy going to be? Because as it, as it reveals itself, as yeah. far as the random setup, what worked last game might not, not work, work this, this game. game. Yeah, yeah. Plus, you've got the thing, you've got alien races with different powers, so you're going to, you've got one bunch of guys who are, like, really peaceful, you've got another bunch that are really aggressive. Some are good. Yeah, some are good at technology, some are good at storing stuff, you know, others are good at exploring. So you've kind of got... So, you know, that little bit of asymmetry between the races. So you, 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 you have to adopt different strategies depending on your particular race. 
So do you have any ideas already cooked up for what's next even after a handful of stars? Or is it, no, I'm focused on this game and that's it, and then once this is ready, then we move on to the next project? Um, in terms of uh, a handful of stars, and that's kind of deck building thing, that, this is the end of line with this because um, this is going to be a limited edition of 2,500, but I've already sold the IP to Fantasy Flight, okay? So in theory, once this is over, the game belongs to them outright. In, in terms of other games I'm working on, oh, I've got quite a few games um, already designed, which I would say are heavier games, um, that I am looking, at the moment, it's, it's looking for the right way to publish them so that I can, I can maximize the amount of money I make from them. So I mean, so I've got a couple of designs that's like, well, I've got one design in particular that I designed about four or five years ago, which really needs to be done on Kickstarter because the components are going to be quite expensive. Uh, at the moment, it's kind of figuring out how, you know, which company to do that, how that's going to be structured. Uh, I've got another game which is a, loosely a follow-up to a study in Emerald. Um, not in terms of mechanisms, but in that continuing a story in an odd direction. And, and that, I mean, this is a game that is just like, just crazy. I mean, it's a mixture, <laughs> it's set in Australia and it's a mixture, mixture of Call of Cthulhu and train building. And I don't think this has ever been done before. I don't know why, they're natural partners well, right there, right? Absolutely, I mean. <laughs> but, um, So again, that's another one where it's like, that one again's pretty much gotta be Kickstarter. It, it's, it's not. It's not a game for the general public. It's not sure. a game, a game that's going to buy. Very enough. niche. It's very niche. So, so yeah, it's just, uh, but again, you know, the, the simpler stuff I'm working on for different companies. So there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline. People, I imagine people are just going to get, at some point, they're just going to, oh, God, not another Wallace game. It's like, really? <laughs> but for... For fans of ours, and that's why I specifically mentioned The Arrival mm. and A Handful of Stars that, mm. that matches our, our scope, I guess mm. is a good way to put it. Um, how will folks be able to follow, especially when it comes to the heavier releases, since Tree yeah. Frog's going away, and that's normally newsletter yeah. type thing, how will folks be able to keep tabs on what um, the next exciting Martin Wallace is. Yeah, it's a good question. If I was more organized, I'd have a mailing list, but I keep forgetting to do things like that because <laughs> I'm usually doing something else. This is why I say I don't, I don't really do marketing. Yeah, in, in theory, yeah, I should just be sticking up, I don't know, my Facebook, you know, on the Tree Frog Facebook page or putting it on the website. I mean, the reality is usually, you know, board game geek, anybody who's interested in the kind of games I do, they go to the geek, sure. and you know it, it's it should be obvious when stuff with my name is coming out. Fair um, enough. So yeah, um, I suppose the, the the thing though is not to expect every game to be in that similar weight range. You know that, which I think that helps hearing that from mm. you, knowing mm. that look, I have to do this to pay the mm. bills so I can do these that, yes. you, that, that our fans of our show and stuff mm. will want yes. more so than some of the lighter games. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that in and of itself is mm. enlightening mm. and something that uh, we'll know to keep an eye out for. Mm. So one last question before we go. Yep. Um, you're a gamer. Yep. 
What are you looking forward to here? Or it, it, you've had time, I hope, to explore the, the fair a bit? Um, actually, no, I've not really looked around a lot. I kind of knew before I came, there's a couple of games I, I was interested in. I mean, there's so many games, it's an overload. But I know when I was at Gen Con, I liked the look of terraforming Mars. So I managed to blag a copy from Stephen at the show here. I'd like to look at Cry Havoc, but Ignacy was very kind. He actually sent me a copy, which arrived just a couple of days before coming over here. You've got to remember, I've got to fly back to New Zealand, so I'm very limited in what I can take. As going to yeah. the States, I can relate, uh, yes. And then I also picked up a copy of Innis from Matago. Um, and then there's a copy of Snowdonia, uh, sorry, the Guilds of London from Surprise Stair Guys. Yep, from Tony. Yeah, yep. Tony. Uh, and that's pretty much it, because I don't, a lot of my gaming time is spent playtesting, so I don't get a lot of time to um, actually play other games. But I figured, no, those sound, you know, good medium head to heavyweight games and kind of interesting. I'm sure I've missed out on some real gems here, but I kind of think, no, this is what I've got. Be happy with what I've got. Fair enough. Yeah. So time frame on a fistful of stars, or a handful, handful of stars, stars sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, we're going to start, we need to get the thing funded because I've got no money. So what we're going to do is be taking pre-orders probably from November. I've got a number of companies who've agreed that they're going to do this. So um, we're talking to Spiral Galaxy in the UK, Board Game Geek are going to help take pre-orders, uh, Grey Fox. Um, so what's going to happen is in November, we're going to put it up on the Tree Frog website and, and people can go there and then they'll be given options depending on where they live say, right, okay, if you're in America, these are your options. If you're in Europe, it's actually going to be one option. <laughs> uh, you know, we'll have an option for Australia because we've got some friends who run uh, uh, Games Capital in Canberra will take pre-orders for us. So there will be different places that people can buy it from. Um, and then those people, once we've got the money in from pre-orders, then we can pay to get the game printed and then get it out there. I should warn people, it's there, it is going to be a high price point. It is a limited game. There's only going to be two and a half thousand units. The artwork has cost us a lot of money. And also, I need to make a bit of money from this just to... Jumpstart. Jump. Well, it's, it's kind of cleaning up, you know, with Tree Frog, we've still got a few unpaid debts left there. So it'd just be good to clear those. So there's a fresh start for the design house. So, uh, you know, people are going to piss and moan like, wow, that's expensive. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, it is, what it, <laughs> it is, is right? what it is, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to say, have to say, you know, Grey Fox and the, the, the people working have been very understanding and they're, they're willing to take a lower cut of the profits, you know, to help us out. So they're, they're not, it's not them gouging the public. It's, it's me. me. <laughs> I'm gouging you, okay? So don't get the idea that they're profiteering from this because it's actually the reverse. Yes. They're actually taking a lower margin than they would do normally. So, uh, you know, a big thank you to those guys for being supportive. And that, that, that's awesome to be <laughs> just straightforward. Look, it's on me, guys. Here we go. All right, so okay. I know you uh, you yeah. have people waiting to uh, to get through a, a play, or not a play test, but oh, a demo yeah, of yeah. Handful of Stars, so I'll let you be. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, definitely keep an ear out uh, going forward for cool. what's next. Thanks yeah. a lot. Thanks, cheers. That was really cool. Uh, big thanks to Martin Wallace for taking the time to sit with me for an interview and honestly for being so candid. 
I didn't expect that. I don't think anybody did. So really? I, from what I heard, that's just that's the way he is. But again, I, I still didn't expect it. So, yeah, that was very, very cool and definitely one of the highlights of Spiel for me. That's awesome. Grail game or in this case, former Grail game time, Princes of the Renaissance. All right, Princes of the Renaissance, originally printed, published in 2003, reprinted, well, now, 2016, and, and November to boot. Designed by Martin Wallace, artist is Peter Dennis, published originally by Warfrog Games, which was Martin Wallace's uh, war game side of his house, mm-hmm. and the reprints by Mercury Games. It plays three to six players, and it says it plays in about three hours. More on that in a bit. As far as availability and cost, well, for the longest time, it's been an out-of-print grail game for many. But as of our recording this, the reprint is shipping to back, uh, Kickstarter backers right now as we speak. Mercury Games did mention, though, that for non-backers and for stores, you're looking at an early 2017 before you're going to see it on shelves at your friendly online game store, like, you know, Game Surplus. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what's going on in the game. Princes of the Renaissance is a classic game where players represent one of the different powerful families during the Italian Renaissance, fighting for influence and prestige in the five major cities in Italy. The game is all about using money and influence, the two currencies in the game, in auctions and wars to gain prestige by the end of the game. The game is chock full of auctions, and believe it or not, stock investing, although not investing as you'd normally think of it. During the game, Players will be able to auction off city tiles, or let's call them what they really are, shares of a city, Right. event tiles, auction off position of the Pope, purchase treachery cards, or start wars. I mean, this is the Italian Renaissance after all, right? Over the course of three decades or rounds, players are going to take turns choosing one of the above mentioned actions. If they put a city tile up for auction... What they're really doing is offering up a share of stock of that city, of which there are six shares of each city. Each of those shares at the end of the game will be worth between 2 and 10 victory points, depending on the prestige level of that city. And that's where the wars come in. Wars are lucrative to take part in, as the winning and losing cities will see their prestige rise and fall, respectively. Not only that, but the individual cities do not have armies of their own. Instead, the players auction off the right to lead the attacking and defending of the warring cities. The prize for winning the auction to become the Condottieri, cash. The city's prestige level dictates the amount of money the Condottieri's will be paid, win or lose, for helping or helping, quote unquote, (laughs) win the war. So you would think that wars are started all the time as they're the main mechanic in how cities raise their prestige and players earn cash. But clever as the design is, wars are limited in that there can only be a certain amount in a given decade, four or five depending on the player count. I didn't even mention that whoever won the auction to become Pope can choose to side with the attacking or defending city and add their armies to the respective condottieri's armies. Oh, and we can't forget the playing of treachery cards, which can remove units from battle or give small modifiers to help sway a war as well. Now, 
All of this isn't to say that winning wars doesn't pay. Not only does the prestige of the city go up for the winning side, but the condottieri of the winning city also gains victory points based upon a Fibonacci sequence scale. So the more wars you win, the more victory points you're going to gain for the end of the game. The timer of the game and of each of the three decades are the event tiles. Those get auctioned off when a player selects them and they provide bonus endgame victory points or in some instances, can directly impact a city's prestige level. There are four for each decade, and when the fourth one is auctioned off each decade, that ends said decade, so the players are in complete control of the length and timer of the game. After the third decade, players tally up their victory points, get victory points for the most cash, influence in hand, respectively, and whoever has the most wins. So, let's talk plays player count and scalability i've played it four times so far and all at five and six players for what it's worth though bgg community says it's it's pretty solid and our buddies uh over at punching cardboard jim and eric have played it four player and said they thought it played really well oh. at four as well three players is doable but it's less than ideal like most auction yeah games. you don't want to play auction games with less than four people that would be kind of weird i or in this case i i think that's true again this is all conjecture because right. neither of us have played it right. with less than five but it is what it is now i've got one less play than you i've played it three times one six player and two five player games as far as scalability the only aspect of the game that scales with less than five players is that there can be a maximum of only four wars per decade as opposed to five. Other than that, there's really no, no scaling to speak of. There really isn't at all. It's the same game, just less people around the table. All right, let's move on to the cardboard. So components, graphic design, artwork, etc. So components. Chunky wooden bits mm -hmm. for the attacking, defending city markers and a wooden cannon for the warrior's marker. Let me stop and, and mention that... This entire review is going to be about the Mercury reprint because, yes. let's face it, that's going to be the main one that's going to be out in the wild. Yes, we have the original, but most people are going to be wanting to know about the Mercury reprint. So that's what this is in regards to. Right. So there's cardboard for everything else other than basically those three, three pieces yeah. of wood, right? Yeah, the, there's cardboard standees to... Um, indicate the different families and as far as all you know whether or not you've passed in an auction or you're right. still taking place i think those are good in theory but all too often uh, people just forget to use them yeah. oh wait no i didn't pass let me right. turn this around right. so i think it's one of those things to where oh it's a cool you know idea in concept but mm -hmm. in, in actuality i don't know that they're really necessary right uh and on that same note the fact that the both currencies have to be shown. Like you have to show the number of chits you have, but it's hidden information. So you have to have the chits available to be seen by people, but only you know what every value of them are. Because they range from one to ten. And that is a pain in the butt because you have to constantly be shifting them around, looking at them, picking them up, looking at them you to figure out how much you have. Because if you're like me and have a short-term memory problem, you can't remember <laughs> what you just looked at. Right, and so that, uh, yeah, but 
to their defense, I don't know that they could have done anything differently to to make. You couldn't use a player screen because if you did, then people wouldn't know how many chits, you know, a ballpark idea on how much you have. So that wouldn't work. So I think it's a a problem without a reasonable solution. The only thing I've been able to come up with is like a... A Scrabble tile holder thingy, like that you just stack them in, but that you know that's whatever. That's kind of dumb too. So I don't know. <laughs> I think I think it's much ado about nothing. Yes, it's a bit of a pain yeah. in the butt, but eh, it, it is it what it is. It doesn't make me not want to play the game. It's right. just annoying. So everything cardboard wise is is thick. All the tiles are thick and and you know chunky cardboard. So I think the component quality on all of that is really good. However, the city value markers are cardboard. I would have liked to have seen them be little wooden discs. Yeah, that would have um, been nice. I I, I it just kind of it kind of lessens the production a little bit. Just that one little thing, uh, as far as component quality goes. The cards are decent card stock, and I haven't felt the need to sleeve them. No. I think they're fine. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that's pretty much it as far as the, the components go. Mm-hmm. The box size, it's the same as Guns of Gettysburg and other games of theirs. It's very close to a standard box size, kind of like Agricola or whatnot. It's 12 and a half inches by just over 9 inches by just over 2 inches thick. Although the orientation is sideways, mm-hmm. so instead of it being, you know, long ways on your shelf, it's not it portrait, would be, it's landscape. There you go. Thank <laughs> you. All right. So as far as graphic design, I think it's pretty clear overall. It's, yeah, it's very clear. I'm glad they, they clearly marked on the city status display or the, the tr- stock track, if mm-hmm. you will, the starting values of each city, a simple but helpful addition that the original did not have, which... That it's a nice good. little thing. I do wish the cost of the treachery cards, though, was listed somewhere. And whether the event tiles uh, were auctions or of money or influence, I wish those were a little bit more prominent yeah. on the tiles themselves. Yeah, they're pretty small. Other than that, I'd say I'm pretty pleased with the graphic design. I have one other complaint. Um, the purple and blue cities, the colors are quite close to each other you can tell the difference with them side by side but if you're just looking at a purple city or just looking at a blue city it might be hard for some people to differentiate the two colors i'll i'll agree with that it's also going to be dictated by your lighting situation True. the better the lighting the more obvious the differences yes, are for sure um if it's in a little bit of a lower light environment you're, then you're, yeah there that can be an issue although it's not a big issue i would say I also would think that the name of the city could be a little bit bigger on the board because whenever, for example, whenever you purchase um, and place artist artists, yeah. you put it on top of the board and it very much almost completely covers up the city name. So that would be better if that was a little bit bigger font. All right, moving on to the artwork. I The artwork's been completely redone uh, for the Mercury Games reprint. And the choices that they they chose, I think, are really well done. Beautiful colors and simple yet clear iconography on the board. Yeah, for sure. All right, so the rule book. The rule book in the second edition, really clear, and there really wasn't anything that required us to go searching for on BGG as far as rules questions. Anything that comes to mind for you? Not that I can think of off the top of my head, no. However... I do wish there was a player aid for each player to remind everyone what their options were, as as well as what a money auction and what uh, and what an influence auction. You know what 
these tiles are influence auctions. Right. These are money auctions and stuff. And yes, as you play the game more, that becomes more obvious. Uh, but when you're first starting out, something like that would be very beneficial for newer players. And also to remember that whenever a city tile is auctioned, that it's always double the the start bid is double the value of the city currently. Exactly. That would be good as well. It would. I mean, I don't know what six extra pieces of paper would cost, you know, or cardstock would cost to add to the value, you know, as far as the, the game production wise. But that's a that's a shortcut that I or a a cost savings that I wish wasn't. I would have been willing to pay a little bit right. more to have that. Yes, there are ones that are on BGG that you can print out, but that's just that's something that it's an oversight that shouldn't have been yes, in my opinion. I agree. All right, as far as now setup, tear down, teaching and learning. Setup really simple, really straightforward. Separate the money and influence tokens into different piles, being the most quote unquote difficult part, which is to say that there really isn't anything time consuming. No. Tear down, all you need is a handful of baggies. Separate the, the coin by denomination, the influence by denomination, if you want to go that extra step to save you a little time later on, and then bag up the wooden bits, and, and really, that's it. Yep. I mean, there's just not much there. It really isn't. As far as teaching and learning, the concept, like the actual rules are not hard. No. But understanding, okay, hey, I, I understand the mechanics of it, but I don't understand the repercussions of everything. That's where it gets a little tricky. So you go over the actions that a player can take on their turn, spend a little extra time explaining how everything works, especially the wars, clarify the timing of playing treachery cards, although most are clearly defined on the cards, and then explain game and game scoring. And that's that's pretty yeah, much it. There's not a ton of rules overhead. Uh, so, yeah, as far as teaching and learning, teaching, not hard. Learning, concept-wise, not hard. <laughs> but the actual intricacies of the game is where where it gets a little tricky. Yeah. All right. So, heavy, medium, somewhere in between? What do you think? I'd say somewhere in between. I would, too. But it's due entirely to the gameplay and careful manipulation of the other players that this and what it takes to play so well is, is where the weight. Yeah, going that's to where the from. meat is. the The rules overhead, like I said, is not very much. It's getting to the point to where you actually understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, right. and the repercussions and the and the the impact that that has on the game itself. So that's kind of rolling into the complexity of this. Um, you know, what the players can do within the game space that the rules provide is really where the weight of the game is going to come from, right. not the complexity in the rules. No, not at all. As far as planning, largely tactical game, even though there is some long-term overarching planning that a player can do, go heavy investing in merchant city tiles to help boost their money and victory points, and less so on armies and stuff. So mm -hmm. you can kind of follow a general path, but I feel like what players do and how in, how auctions are going are things going higher than you mm -hmm. expected or, or for more money or more influence than you expected. And you having to adjust on the fly, all that makes it for 
overall, I would say, a more tactical mm-hmm. game than it is strategic. Yeah, I would agree. You can't really have a overall plan set in concrete. When you sit down to play the game, there's no way. You have to be flexible. As far as luck and random factors, all the city, event, and army tiles are face up at the beginning of the game, and during set- setup, one city tiles remove randomly from each city, so there's a little bit of variability there, mm-hmm. but all of those are known before the game starts. There is a random draw of the treachery cards, which they do have an impact on the game, yeah. no doubt. My favorite, though, is the, the stop bidding card. Yes, the freeze bid. Yes. You can play this on a player to essentially cause them to bow out of an auction, which forces players to be more thoughtful with their bids is going up incrementally can be costly if one of these is played on you by the player you're bidding against. Yep. Oh, you're going to go up by one? No, you're no, done. You're and now I'm going to outbid you and oh, I have it. That's one of my favorite parts of the game. So, or maybe you just bid your actual amount that you're willing to pay, and who cares if you somebody plays that freeze bid card on you. So it it can influence the way you play the game as far as that specific card is an example. So we talked about everything being up front, uh, face up as far as the tiles. Mm-hmm. There's the random draw of the treachery t- uh, cards. And yes, there are dice in this game that you <gasps> roll. <gasps> I kid somewhat, but in the end, the dice rolls do play a part in the game. But overall, I feel like it's relatively a small part. They are more or less random modifiers to the already known attack and defending values of the armies that are battling. Yes, a high or low roll may mean the difference between winning or losing a war, but more often than not, it's really the strength of the armies that are pitted against one another that really dictate the the outcome of the yeah, war that's really yeah i i couldn't really come up with anything that was luck or random based other than the treachery cards and the dice there's there really isn't anything else now there is one other thing that i didn't know where to put it so i put it here and just to put it out there is there is that hidden trackable information in the in the form of influence and money so take that for what it's worth I would not want everything to be face up because it would drag the game on far, far too long for what it is. Uh, So if hidden trackable is an issue, well, be aware of it. Right. As far as getting it, what do you think? I think I think about a decade that gives you at least. No, 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 no. no. Let me finish. A decade. Ten years. Yeah. Yeah. And a decade in the game, goofball. But no, like, to be able to see how treachery cards work, to be able to see how the auctions work on both sides, wars, to be able to see all of that stuff is going to take, you know, a turn and or a round. And I think that that's good to get the game, the rule set, all of that stuff, kind of see how everything works. But being able to actually move the cogs in the way that you want, that's going to take longer. Yeah, That's pretty much what I have as far as my notes go. It's a game that's going to take repeated plays to really get good in the gameplay, as well as seeing some of the more opaque repercussions of decisions within the game space. It's just, it's not a game that you can play well your first game. I don't care if you won your first game against other new players. That doesn't matter. To get good at this game, this is a game that absolutely is going to require 
repeated multiple, multiple plays. Yeah, I agree. All right. So what makes the game enjoyable and why? I love that the auctions start in the pregame. Yes. Determine first player by auctioning. And then players in reverse order have to then outbid the first player to then have first choice of families and whatever bonuses that those families will give you throughout the game. As if the game didn't have enough auctions, you get some before the game even begins. Right. It's, it's, I love auctions and... This just should be called Auction the Game. (laughs) With Italian stuff. The asymmetrical families have real impact on the game, or they don't have a real impact, a, a major impact in the game. And what I mean by that is, in the new version of the game, there's the original that has whatever the the rule breakers on like you get a discount for bidding influence to be conditieri mm-hmm. or another you get gold back when bidding for gold stuff like that well on the other side of the family tiles and you agree on this before the game starts they're all muted they're all they're all lessened mm-hmm. so that those asymmetrical starting has less impact on the game and allows for a more strategic game. However, some people say that some of those in the stand, on the standard size are overpowered or broken. Well, my argument against that is, okay, if you don't want somebody else to have whatever one that you feel is overpowered, bid more to go first or to be... have first choice Mm -hmm. of the family and whoever does that is paying more gold so they start the game with less gold because they got this so i feel like there's a player dictated balance and if you can't balance that or choose not to that's a player issue not a game issue. exactly i agree with that however if you don't want to have to mess with that at all turn it over to the other side and everybody play with the muted side my apprehension i guess about that i'll be honest we have not played with the muted side on that uh, on so far but my hesitancy my yeah sure we'll go with that is that kind of lessens the impact of that initial pregame auction and Mm -hmm. i feel like that can be and should be an important part of the way to start the game but then again with new players New players don't know the value of these things, so maybe that would be a... Maybe a good intro game. Or, or maybe just a more strategic game. But anyway, I just... I think that's a cool thing, the asymmetrical start. but And it's also a cool option for players to whichever side they want to go with. Mm-hmm, right. And one thing about those is that some are definitely better than others. Some of the the effects or powers that you get. They all can be used to achieve different goals, though. I mean, like, for example, the, I believe it's El Ete okay. family. Um, they can purchase the heavy-duty military during the first round. Everybody else has to wait until the second round to be able to do that. So, but that is their only power. So if you don't use it to its full potential in the first decade, you completely have wasted your bid. I mean, if you don't get your military and, you know, attack everybody, set, do as many wars as possible in that first round, then 
you spent your money for nothing. Right. But then again, going into the game, if you can't, it, it, this goes back to that whole planning thing. If you went into the game planning on using them and, okay, this is my strategy. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to really hit it hard and not necessarily start wars or go to war, but when being conditionary right, exactly. um, to, uh, you know, in the wars mm-hmm. and being involved and using that power. So I don't, yes, I would say it's weaker in a sense, but it, I bet you if it was in the hands of somebody who was, who knew what they wanted to do and was able to execute things the way they want to do it, then maybe it gives them a big enough head start to where they then can potentially, you know, manipulate their way through the game and not have that as a as a weak spot and mm. not having a, a power throughout the rest of the game. Are we at that level? No. But could I see it? Potentially, yes. All right. But yes, I do agree that it feels weaker and I if there are others that feel stronger. But again, use the other side of the tiles if you don't want to mess with that. Right. And another thing is that I mean, it's 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 silly to say this, but if if the family that you choose allows you to pay less for auction wins, then you know you, it, you should probably remember. Yeah, that. It, it's kind of important to you know remember that you know um, you yeah. know I mean it's the same decade, right, Kliker? It's the same decade. <laughs> yeah, that and and that's on the players though. I mean, yeah, hey, for sure. it, it's your bonus ability. If you can't remember it, that's on it's you. It's not our fault. Yeah, I know. But I'm just saying that you have to, you know, don't check your brain at the door. Don't get so involved in the bidding that you forget that you get to pay less right. for it. So the game's simple mechanically, but and the players dictate how hard the game is. I mean, at least in theory, the game could last, in a six-player game, it could last to where everybody gets two actions. If everybody was just putting up event tiles Mm -hmm. the players completely dictate how hard the game is as well as how long the game is and that's going to either really appeal or really not appeal to certain people and i'm the type that that really appeals to we're not playing 12 rounds we are playing however long Mm -hmm. it takes for all of us between us to auction off the four event tiles of every decade which is 12 so Maybe it goes 30 rounds. Maybe it goes 12. Who knows? But somewhere in there. I think that's that's a perk to the game. I really dig that. That's yeah, very interesting. So we haven't even talked about negotiation. Now, our group isn't the best with this. <laughs> but with repeated plays, that comes into play more and more. And it very much is a negotiation game. As an example... Negotiating what city is going to be the attacking city. Say I'm I'm I on my action I choose to go to war. I say, hey, I'm thinking about putting this city up as the attacking and this one as the defending. And someone pipes up, hey, I'll give you two influence or I'll give you three money if you choose this city as the attacking city. Okay, cool. Always make them pay first, though, because yep. nothing verbal is not binding mm-hmm. in this case. So okay, cool. So I take the money. I don't have to honor it, but let's say I do. Cool. All right. Good deal. Then someone else chimes in. Hey, you know what? That player also is invested equally over in this city. So why don't you make this one the defending city and I'll give you a gold or two for it. 
oh, okay, so now we're going to split the difference? Yeah, deal. And now I got paid for doing something that I may have already wanted to do or something that either helps me directly or indirectly. Yeah, win-win. I think that's just deliciously fun. That also, though, is going to be group dependent. Yes, most definitely, because most of the time we just kind of sit there and look at each other and say, okay, and don't do, don't negotiate, don't do anything like that. So there's dual currencies in the game. There's money and influence, and they buy different things. City tiles or shares of the city are always cash. To become condottieri in wars, always influence. Event tiles can be either. To become the Pope, got a influ- got a uh, bit influence. And both currencies are always tight, which also makes deciding on when to spend them so deliciously important. Yep. There can be things that are just must-haves for you that round, but that means that you know, you're know you broke for the rest of the round. If those things come available, uh, put up for auction, and you feel like you really got to have it... Nothing you can do, man. Or or you, you swallow, you suck it up, and you say, you know what? I'm going to let it go, and I'm not going to. So, hey, there's that tactical play. Change, yeah. change course. Yep. Or maybe you stick by your guns, and like you said, great, now I'm down to four money. Or three money, maybe this round. I don't have enough to, you know, when the minimum bid is like uh, eight or whatever for for a city tile, I guess you're done investing in stocks this round. Yep. Which can really hamper you or not, depending on how it is that you're, what direction you're going in the game. Being able to hurt a city by purposefully losing a war is... Is very, very cool. I mean, you're basically, you're tanking stocks, you know, but you're doing so by losing a war. And it would be an interesting strategy to never obtain an army, or at least a very small one, and constantly get into wars and lose those wars for cities you're not invested in. That's that's awesome. You know, stuff that you have no intent in right. partaking in. Right. Or just to cause players that do have a vested interest in those cities to spend influence. Mm-hmm. Because maybe you do this, you start a war because you want this player who's heavily invested in this city, you think you're going to spend or they're going to spend influence to defend it. So now they're poorer on influence. But what you really wanted was this. Was that tile. Was this tile. And so now they're too broke to be able Mm -hmm. to bid on it. And hey, you manipulated the players into doing what you wanted them to do so that you get the stuff that you want. Yep. Awesome. That is fantastic. So on that note, there's always that near constant emerging and shifting alliances between players because new players are invested in this city or you never divest. You're never selling shares. And I guess I should mention at some point that you're allowed a total of six stocks or six city tiles and only three different cities that you're allowed to invest in. So there's there is a limit on where your investing goes and you don't want to necessarily or maybe you do invest too heavily too early in a city and then watch that city's value just plummet. Yeah, that's no fun at all. <laughs> but at the same time, you don't want to be the only person invested in a city because then you're too easy to... Yeah, you're a target at that point. Yeah, you're too easy to manipulate. Like, oh, I got to go defend them again. Mm-hmm. And you just become a huge target, like you said. 
So kind of to circle back on what we had said earlier about forcing players to spend money or influence when they really don't want to, and also having those same tough spots pushed onto you, we enjoy that kind of give and take of player manipulation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I absolutely love it. It's fun, but it's tense fun. This is not a, hey, I'm building a resource engine and let me see how well I can do. This is a knife fight that is it's stressful. Yeah. It's it's stressful in a different way than a game like Agricola would be to where you're constantly stressed about being able to to generate enough food and all that. Well, and I think that that's an interesting point because with an Agricola, you're you're the the tenseness comes from the game in Princess of the Renaissance, the ten, the the tenseness comes from the other people around the table. Yeah, and you're constantly engaged and you're constantly worrying yep. about other players and what they're going to do and are they going to thwart your plans and if they do, are you going to be able to have a fallback plan and a fallback plan to your fallback mm -hmm. plan and, oh, wait, this actually worked. I didn't expect this. Now what do I do? And it's just, it's it's a tense game. Yeah. The, the, it's fun but it's not a ha 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 yay it's <sighs> fun yeah you know yeah. that kind and let me ask you something as as i'm finishing up the the things that i really dig about the game what do you think about this being considered a potential good crossover game between euro players and ameritrash players in that you know there's really a lot of pvp in this game it's very player versus player as opposed to engine building or anything else that is very eurocentric i feel like this the all the wars and every everything's very abstracted and it's very simple but the amount of negotiation a la diplomacy style right. or imperial almost mm -hmm. this kind of feels like it does this make it a decent candidate for a crossover for between you know to join the two types of games i i'm not sure i don't think i agree with that um because this is more on the economic this is more on like the economic side of things because in in like imperial you have to wrap your brain around the fact that the cities are stocks and not you know something else and not a player doesn't own a city right exactly or, right or yeah. a country in that right or in that in that game, but I don't. Not in in my opinion, no, it is not. Okay, well, I just it occurred to me while I was getting ready for the show, and I was like, huh, I wonder if if maybe because, like you said, it is it is a a, a, a stock investing game, really, right. in a sense. Yeah. But it has war, it has negotiation, it has all that. So I thought maybe, but all right. You got anything else on the positive side of the ledger? No, I think we've talked about everything. So what about not? To like about the game well the first and foremost one that comes to mind is like most auction games determining the value of things is very opaque to beginners auctions such as which families really do what and how to use them and how does turn order really matter those are pre-game auctions and they matter but without experience in your first game, how do you know how to value things? You don't. It, you, you really don't. And so this is why I said earlier that it absolutely requires multiple plays, potentially, ideally, with the same players to get the most out of this game. This is not going to be a game that you can just do 
once a year, once every few years, and really in get the most out of this game. This is going to require multiple plays and something in kind of quick succession. Relatively, I think, but it, it's going to it's going to reward folks that want to stick with the game for a bit and not ooh, what's the latest hotness yeah. and move on to the next game. Um, so that's going to limit possibly the audience that this is for. But then again, the type of person that is going to want that is going to seek out this type of game anyway. So maybe it's self-selecting. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? But yeah, I think it's, yeah. And it's also fragile with players at different experience levels. You And this basically ties into what I was just saying, that if you have somebody that's played the game five, six, seven times and somebody new... The new player is going to get just destroyed. Yeah, they can just go into the game understanding that and trying to It's learn. a learning game, exactly. right? Yeah. The wars seem kind of arbitrary. What do you mean? Well, there's no punishment for you. But the cities you represent can be hurt. So, like, you get paid no matter what. Right. Which is awesome. Well, yeah, but, I mean, it makes for interesting gameplay, but the actual wars themselves just seem kind of, kind of weird. Because you would think that... You know, like in a typical war game or whatever, like if you get hurt, you would lose your troops or something would happen. Right. And and, uh, yeah, that's a good point because we haven't even mentioned that, that you never lose the armies that you build up. So if you take a crossbow Mm -hmm. guy or a unit, you never lose that. It's there in perpetuity unless you choose to lose it for whatever reason. And you're only allowed one of each type. And and that does seem gamey in some respects, but I could also I could also throw up a thematic reason for that. That hey, I am, you know, this super powerful family. I can always recruit this type of unit, so it's no big deal. I understand I understand where, you know, where it's coming from and how it can be just a, a part of the game and everything. It just I mean, it just, you know, it's it's so abstracted that it feels just kind of strange. That's all. I, I'll buy that. We actually, it's funny. The first time we played it, we were like, wait, you don't Right. Lose? You get money? Like, what? Yeah, you get money, but you don't lose any of the, are, are we sure these, yeah. don't, these <laughs> don't go back into the supply? No, they really don't. They really, really don't. So this game does impart some frustration and some chaos. Getting treachery cards played on you repeatedly can be really irritating yes. to say the least, which I can, I was, I, I want to say it was like Dieste, I think is the family, the one where you were talking about earlier that you can have, it's either artillery or cavalry in the first round, whereas nobody else can buy it's those. both of those. But the, the frustrating thing for me was I kept getting bribe troops yeah. card played on me, so I never got to use them. And I'm like, so I think I have this really big, strong, powerful army because I think they have a three attack, which is really, really big in this game. That I just could never get it played, and I just—it's hard not to get frustrated. I mean, yes, it's—it's it's all part of the game, and I know that going in and everything, but it still was frustrating. Oh, absolutely, so. yeah, I can understand that. Which kind of ties into my next one is, at least for me, I gotta be in the right mood to play this game. Yes. The game pits player versus player, so it's not always an easy game to get to the table with our group, or honestly, it's not a game that I'm always in the mood to play. Yes, this was a grail game for me, and yes, I thoroughly enjoy this game. Mm -hmm. 
but I don't, I'm not always in a mood to play this game because it is that really tense, just, it's not that ha 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 fun. Yeah. It's, it's a different kind of fun. So it, re- it, it, it takes, it takes something out of me whenever I play this. So I have to be in the proper mindset and it's just, it's just draining, mm-hmm. I guess is a good way to put it. And so that's something some people only want to play those type of games and cool, no worries. I'm not always that way. Yes, I have my warmongering side to where the in my backstabby side to where yeah, I'm in the mood for this, but not always. And this seems like a game that would be I mean, we obviously have never done this, but it would be kind of weird as a pickup game. Like I feel like you kind of need to know the people that you're playing with to be able to get a read on them. Oh, that would be interesting. So you're saying like at a con, yeah, like that, with complete strangers. Yeah, that would just yeah let's be, play Princes of the Renaissance that, and have no clue. Right, like you have no idea <laughs> who the person is across from you that that's that's bidding against you. It's just it, that... On a personal level, like, oh, I know that Ash is a very honest and straightforward person. Right. I He wouldn't do that, would he? He wouldn't lie to me, right. would he? And, you know. you know, I can tell when you're lying because you cannot stop your eyes from smiling, and I, I know that. Now, someone else might not, but I know that. And so it just, it, it seems like it would be really hard and weird and not as much fun to play with strangers. That's something I never occurred, that occurred to me, and I think it would be fun fun to experience but i you very well might be right in that that's huh good call all right so before we wrap up as i am want to do once in a while i like going through the comments on the game and bgg and picking out some on the plus and minus side of it and uh and have some fun so here we go a game full of subtlety however the strategies are not obvious and probably needs a couple of plays to get the most out of it. Kind of as we said, right? Exactly. This is a stock market game in which wars are used to affect stock values. I like the idea of deliberately losing fights to advance one's interest. It captures the Machiavellian theme very well, which yeah, absolutely. Which I, yeah. <laughs> it has the modern art concept of groupthink making the city valuable, which is fine. But the wars drive me a little nuts, and they're pretty chaotic. Oh, okay. Interesting. Some concepts weren't clear the first time around, and relative value of certain things was pretty much lost on me. Yeah, you got it. I mean, first game, absolutely. A rich, tense, and complex bidding game with lots of interesting options, even after you run out of money. Hmm. It isn't elegant, but it delivers brutal choices and intrigue in spades. And lastly, as with most Martin Wallace titles, I find the game a struggle, but I'm comforted in knowing that everyone feels the same way. There are many options, and accurately assessing the value of those options and how much to bid for them is quite the trick. Yes. I think that kind of that kind of covers the gamut yeah, really of, does. Uh, of all that. So, summary. Go for it. Yeah, because I never want to follow you. Princess of the Renaissance is Martin Wallace at his best. Auctions, treachery, you know, all the good stuff. The Mercury Games reprint clarifies some rules and makes the actual physical game look and feel better than the original Warfrog version. I love auctions and love strategic card play. This game is probably going to wind up being one of my favorite Wallace games. Nice. Okay. All right. So, for me, this is an absolutely classic Wallace 
simplish rule set that allows players to play the game the way they want to play it. But along with that sandboxy feel comes a certain level of fragility and potential groupthink that can add or subtract from the enjoyment of the game. But the game is the type of idiosyncratic game that I love, be it from Martin Wallace or another designer. It's not going to suit everyone, but those that it does suit, it's going to suit very, very well. So as far as ratings, as you all know, it's been a while. We rate on a one to six scale, one being burn it with fire and six being a Hall of Fame game, two being two, three, four and five being some in the middle there. There's no halves. There's no nothing. It's a solid number. So ladies first. A five. This it's not a Hall of Fame game to me, but it is a game that it's it's just a great it's just a great game. I I agree with you that you would have to be, I have to be in the mood to want to play it, but I cannot not rate a game this high. If when it has this many auctions, come on. I also have it rated a five, which is a little disappointing that we share the same rating yet again. (laughs) Hey, we are married. (laughs) But still we have different tastes, but yeah, I have it as a five. And like you said, I don't always want to play this game. There, there are, I'm going to go months and not want to play right. this game. But when I play this game and I'm in the mood to play this game, it scratches all the itches that I want it to scratch. And yes, it has that fiddliness. It has that, you know, a little bit of rough edge that I really like in my games. And that's why I, I rated a five. So you very well might see this on a top 50 list, you know. Next year. Yeah. So, and with that, that's Princes of the Renaissance. And for all those folks who don't know how to get in contact with us, Amanda. Our website is heavycardboard.com. Our email address is contact at heavycardboard.com. We love hearing from you guys, so please don't be shy. Our Twitter handle is at heavycardboard. Our Facebook page is Heavy Cardboard. Our YouTube channel is Heavy Cardboard Vids, V-I-D-S. Our Instagram is Heavy Cardboard. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash heavy cardboard. And our BGG guild number is 2044. All right, my friends, the next few weeks are going to be jam-packed with content. Boy, are they. We have our interview with Mark Swanson, the designer of Feudum. Our feature of Solarius Mission, along with interviews with one of the designers, Andreas Odenal, or Odie, and the publisher, Uli Blenemann from Spielworks. So, talk to y'all next week. Let us know what y'all thought of the abbreviated uh, episodes. Yeah. More, more content, more often, less overhead. Win-win. Win-win.